You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. Thanks for being with us here to worship with us and share together in the Word. I'm very pleased to have a guest speaker here with us today. It wasn't something that we had planned, but God just kind of lined this up and put it together. And uh, there's a gentleman here that's our guest speaker, and he's someone that I met through uh, Facebook group uh, for small group pastors, for small church pastors, and we're a, kind of a collective of pastors that work together to try and encourage one another, help one another out, and when we have questions, we answer them, we try and help each other to be better pastors, and uh, Carl is committed to doing that, and he happened to be in the area, he's originally from California, he and his wife Shelly have been ministering there for quite some time, and he happened to be in the Hartford area, and so he said, you know, if anybody's interested, I'm in the area to have come and speak, and I said, wow, it's very rare that we get to have someone who's, you know, nationally known author, and who has podcasts, and has written for Christianity Today, and Outreach Magazine, and Influence Magazine, uh, been featured there, and his Ministry is uh, in encouraging pastors and encouraging small churches as well. So when I heard that he was in the area, I had to take advantage of the opportunity to have him come and share with you. Uh, And he has a unique perspective because he and his wife were pastoring in California during the pandemic last year, uh, which, as you know, that's a whole unique situation there and the challenges of trying to do church still while all those restrictions were going on and... um, has a unique perspective on these things as well. So would you welcome him as he comes to share with you today, Carl Vaders, as he comes and brings the word. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much. What an honor it is to be here with you today. However, I, I, first of all, I gotta, I'm disappointed and I'm confused. I'm disappointed about one thing. I'm confused about a couple things. One, I'm disappointed we're leaving before the pumpkin shoot. <laughs> I've never even heard of a pumpkin shoot, but now I want to do it more than anything on earth. And we have to leave before it happens. Uh, although I'm kind of glad that we're leaving before it because I heard it was a men-only thing. And if I went to that and Shelly wasn't allowed to shoot pumpkins, I'd be in trouble. Something tells me she wants to shoot pumpkins more than I want to shoot pumpkins. That sounds awesome. I'm confused about a couple things. First of all, what state am I in? Yeah, I know, right? But it, it's a, there's this little notch in the map that's confusing me. <laughs> so it is great to be in Massachusetts. We actually have family uh, in Massachusetts just out, outside of Boston. So we're usually on that end of the state. It is nice to be in this part of the state with you today. So that's the first thing I'm confused about. Second thing I'm confused about is... When will I get to wear my winter clothes? We brought along the only jackets we have, and you haven't given us weather yet to wear them in. So, well, it's fine for you. I know you, you, you're, you're happy for the warm. I'm from California. I get this at home. We wanted something new. So bring the cold, please, just for us while we're here, okay? And the third point of confusion, the leaves. It's mid-October, I mean, we don't see them at all. I was, I was born in Newfoundland and raised in Toronto. So this whole, the fall season and the falling leaves has been very familiar to me. But we don't see it regularly in California. So quite frankly, the whole thing, where am I? I don't know. What time of the year is it? I don't know. Why is it so warm? I don't know. And why can't I shoot pumpkins? That's just, I, I'm out of here. I'm just leaving. <laughs> It, is, it really is wonderful to be with you today, and I really do appreciate the opportunity and the invitation. Um, a, a little over three years ago, actually almost a thousand days ago, I put something up on Twitter, and uh, let's put it up um, behind you here so you can see it. Um, I, for those of you who aren't on Twitter, God bless you. You are probably much more mentally stable than those of us who are on Twitter. Uh, but uh, 986, that was taken two days ago, so 988 days ago, I believe it was, I put this up on Twitter. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels, 2 Timothy 2.23. Now, why did I put it up there? Well, um, somebody actually gave a study on that passage, and I thought, well, that's actually, it's one of those things where, you know, I've read, read the Bible dozens and dozens of times, and every once in a while something comes out, and you go, is that really in there? Yeah, that really is in there. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. It doesn't say me you can't have anything to do with arguments, just not the foolish and stupid ones. 
right? It's not saying don't argue. There are some good arguments, but not the foolish and stupid ones. Just, just, don't, just don't enter, right? Because you know they produce quarrels. They don't produce answers. They don't produce solutions. Engaging in a foolish and stupid and quor- uh, argument only produces a quarrel. So why would I want to, first of all, engage in something that's foolish and stupid? And it's okay, I can use these words in church because it's in the Bible, right? Right. Why would I want to engage in something that's foolish and stupid? And especially why would I want to engage in something that is only going to result in a quarrel? It's not going to result in a solution. So I thought, you know, that's an interesting verse, especially for kind of where things ha- have been lately. And I thought, where, where's the, the big ma- main place on earth where that um, verse is probably needed more than anywhere else? And I went, <gasps> Twitter. So I put it up on Twitter one day, and it just got this ridiculous response, like nothing other than just the verse, and it just got this ridiculous response. So I thought, I'm going to put it up for a week in a row and see what happens. At the end of the week, I had had so many people commenting on it, retweeting it, thanking me for it, and I thought, I'm just going to keep going until I fix Twitter. Or until the Word of God fixes Twitter, I, you know. Um, and and, and I'm about, I think I'm about four days away. It feels almost fixed. Uh, it's going to keep going until Twitter is fixed or I'm with Jesus and something tells me I'm going to be with Jesus first. So as you can see, we're almost up to a thousand days on that. And like I say, almost every day it gets comments and likes and shares. Let me show you some of the comments I've received just simply putting it up without comment. Let me show you a couple of them here. Um, first of all, somebody said this, almost every time I come to tw- on Twitter, I see some stupid argument that somehow still shocks me. And then I see your daily reminder, genuinely, thank you. Somebody else said, was going to send an angry tweet. Then I saw your daily message, so I didn't. Thanks, I think. (laughs) Just so you know, your constant avoid foolish arguments post reminded me to delete something. Thanks, brother. That's a win. Several times I found myself deleting instead of tweeting because I remember that I just hit the like button on this post and I don't want to be a hypocrite. Another one, I see this almost every day and I need it almost every time. And someone else just simply said, thank you for continuing to tweet this. I have to tune into it daily. So what's going on? Because these are mostly Christians and in fact, in my, on my Twitter feed, mostly pastors. Why is everybody so angry? Why is it so hard to just avoid getting into a foolish and stupid argument? What is happening? Why are we spending so much of our time and our emotion getting so angry at almost everything? Well, a a, a few years ago, actually when I was a young pastor, quite a few years ago, uh, there was an older pastor near me. His name was Fred Cottrell, and uh, Fred had been a tank commander in World War II, and he had amazing stories. He actually rose high enough in the ranks as a tank commander. He directly reported to Patton before the end of the war. So that gives you some idea of what he did. And uh, one of the stories that he told was this. He said early on when he was just overseeing uh, just a handful of, of tanks, they were, uh, they were uh, against the Germans and they were on each, on, on, one, each, on each side of a ravine. And it was rocky territory. So they basically, their tanks were hidden behind various spots. The German tanks were hidden behind various spots. And they kind of ended up just at a stalemate because they couldn't see each other. Each of them was so well hidden they couldn't see each other. But at some point, somebody was going to have to move. And when they did, they were supposed to take them out. But he said it went on and on and on. And I can't remember in the story. It was definitely hours. It may have even been days. And it was just the longest time. And so he, he says, I'm in charge of the whole thing. And I'm trying to figure out what it is. And we're just going crazy. You got a bunch of young men in tin cans with nothing to do, waiting to see who's going to get shot first. And it's... It's really not a good situation. So he says, I'm, I'm sitting there one day, and we're basically just bored out of our minds, and all of a sudden I hear a boom. I think, he said, I think that's from the German side, but it's not, it's not landing where it should land. And here's another boom. And he goes, there's something about that it's just, that's off. And then here's another boom, and he goes, I think that's from our side. But it, and then boom, boom, boom. And he's wondering, what's going on? I'm hearing it from both sides, but I'm not... There's something about the direction. There's something about the way it's going on that doesn't make any sense to me. So the only way he could actually see it was he had to, you know, lift the lid, right, and stick his head up. So he does that, and he looks, and all of the turrets are aimed down into the ravine going back and forth. 
And he's, what's going on? He lifts it a little further out, and there's a wild hog running back and forth in the ravine. <laughs> and he says, I look across, and I realized half the German tanks are now exposed, and we're not paying attention. And then he looks around and realizes, half of ours are exposed, and they're not paying attention. And he says, we all got distracted from a literal life and death situation because of a wild hog running through a ravine. And this, to me, I think, is a big part of what's happening in the church today. We have a job to do. We have a mission. God has given us a purpose. And we spend half of our times getting distracted by the wild hogs that the enemy just runs in front of us just to give us something else to do. And we get distracted from the main business. I think that's what's happening with the foolish and stupid arguments. And it's always a new argument. And there's always something important about it. Right? It, 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 lately, a lot of it has to, has to do with sexuality or it'll have something to do with, with race or it'll have something to do with, with, with some, other, some other part of our value system. But I've got this picture on my head that, that Satan's out there going, okay, which shiny bobble can I take? I'll, I'll take this one here. And he kind of dangles it in front of us in the news. And one half of us looks at it and goes, oh, that's awesome. And the other half of us looks at it and goes, oh, that's terrible. And we sit there yelling about this shiny little bobble. Meanwhile, the mission is getting distracted from we are running after these wild hogs that have nothing to do with the mission. So, just so you know, uh, no, apparently um, it, it's really hard to hit a moving target with a tank. So the, the hog was not hit. So no, uh, no animals were hurt in the telling of this story. <laughs> I, I have to add that because one time I told that story and at the end of the sermon, somebody rushed up to me and I thought they were really impressed by my message and they rushed up to me, but it was the hog okay. Like they were worried about the hog. Like, oh, my lady, you got to get some other interests in your life because that just seemed a little bit much, but no, no animals were hurt in the telling of the story. Just, so that, that's what we'll be talking about today. My title of my message today is really about these things that distract us as Christians. So it made me want so that's what I believe this verse is about. This verse is about the things that distract us, the foolish and stupid arguments that seem so important at the time. And you know they're foolish and stupid. It's kind of like anybody who's been married more than like three weeks (laughs) knows what I'm talking about because you've had an argument with your spouse when at the end of it, when you finally all calm down, you look back at it and go, we were arguing over what? Because it's not about the argument. It's about the emotion of the moment, right? And it's really just chasing a wild hog that has nothing to do with anything. But it, it can distract us from the main thing. And as Christians, we do the same thing. So why do we chase these foolish and stupid arguments that only produce quarrels? And so as I was studying it, it made me wonder why this particular verse was in this particular book. So I did a short study of Second Timothy. And let me walk you through a little bit of where this verse comes from. The book of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy about the church that Paul had started and that Timothy was now pastoring. So Paul would go and he would start churches. Sorry, this is what happens when you've got a guest speaker and you, he's trying to figure out how to not make this. Uh, oh, that feels like it's going to stay. There we go. Um, I, I, had it, I had it set before, but until I actually start talking and it starts moving, that's when it right. This. This is trying to keep you from being distracted by me being distracted is what I'm doing. This is just part of the sermon. That's all it is. (laughs) So 2 Timothy, written by Paul to Timothy, because Timothy was now pastoring the church that Paul had started, planted in the town of Ephesus. We know a lot about Ephesus as Christians. In fact, we probably know more about Ephesus in the first century than we know about any other city aside from Jerusalem and Rome. Because so much is written about it. Paul started the church there. Later he went back and he used the town of Ephesus as his home base to do ministry on, uh, in, in that region for over three years while planting churches in nearby cities. The story about how that happened is in Acts 19. We, of course, have the book of Ephesians, which is written to the church in Ephesus. First Timothy was written by Paul while under house arrest to uh, Timothy in Ephesus. Second Second Timothy was written by Paul while he was in jail under Nero to Timothy in Ephesus. the, The Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation to seven churches, one of which was the church in Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians while in Ephesus. There's a lot of Ephesus in the New Testament. We know an awful lot about that town. 
So here's some of what we know about the town of Ephesus and why, why Paul ended up writing this passage particularly to them. In Acts 19, when the church in Ephesus was planted by Paul, they were so enthusiastic shortly into their time of worshiping there that they stopped worshiping idols. Now, in Ephesus, every town in that time, every city would have their local god. So there would be a particular god who was over that particular city. And the, the god, the idol that was considered the god of Ephesus was the, idol, was the idol Diana, or depending on the translation, you've got Artemis, depending on which translation you use, depending on which language it comes from. So they were worshiping this god. Let's just go with Artemis for this one. They were worshiping Artemis. And the Artem, if you were going to worship Artemis, the only, uh, all of the idols of Artemis had to be made out of silver. So what would happen is somebody would visit a town, and if you're a Roman or a Greek and you'd visit a town, first thing you'd do is find out who's the god of this town, and they'd say, it's Artemis, and they ha- you have to have a silver idol of Artemis. So in order to be polite and get along in that town, you would go and you would get a, a silver idol of Artemis. You'd put one in your house so that if Ephesians visited, they'd go, oh, good, there's your idol shelf. There's my, my idol from my hometown, the idol from the town that I grew up in, the idol from the town I'm currently in, so that I can show that I'm just, I'm just fine with everybody. And it's, it's, just, it's just being polite right, to the neighbors. You'd put one up in your business so that locals would come and go, oh, you recognize who the goddess of our town is. That was just what you did to be polite because quite frankly, nobody took any of it seriously because we know those gods aren't actually real. So it didn't matter to them and that was what they would do. Now, when people became Christians, however, it was different because when people became Christians, they first of all understood that there is an actual God who actually does exist and he tells us we're not allowed to worship the fake ones. So when people became Christians, they would look at their idol shelf and they'd go, we're getting rid of the idol shelf. And they'd burn the wooden ones to keep warm, but they'd melt down the silver ones to, to make something else of value, right? You're not going to just toss silver. You're going to melt it down and it turn it into something else. Well, what happened was so many of the silver idols were being destroyed in Ephesus that it was actually affecting the business of the silversmiths. They were losing business. It got to the point where one of the silversmiths got so angry that he actually started a riot to try to kick the Christians out of of, of town, or specifically Paul, because of what was happening. So imagine that. There were so many Christians in town that it actually affected the business of the town, and it actually started a riot simply because people were saying, we're not going to worship Artemis anymore, so we don't need the silversmiths as much. Now, that's how it started. But by the time the Ephesian church is mentioned in Revelation, just a couple dozen years later, here's what John says about the church in Ephesus, a church that had one, at one point been on so, so on fire for Jesus that they affected one of the major businesses in a huge city. This church that had been that on fire... Within just a couple dozen years, the Apostle John says this about them in Revelation 2.4. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. How does that happen in just a couple dozen years? From being so on fire for Jesus that you actually impact the major business in a huge city to the Apostle John saying, you've left your first love. Actually, Jesus saying it through John. I have this against you, that you left your first love. How does it go so bad in a single generation? Well, I wondered about that, and so I looked at it, and I discovered this. 2 Timothy is actually the final book that Paul wrote, just a few years before John wrote Revelation. So 2 Timothy is kind of where you begin to see the beginning of the problems. What happened was the Ephesian church had caved to external pressure over the same four things that we Christians today are being asked to cave on. I believe that there are four sticking points for believers that they were for the Ephesian church and that they will be for us today. In fact, they currently are for us today. So let's take a look at this. There are four essential truths that our culture wants to distract us from. Here are this. One, the existence of God. Two, the authority of Scripture. Three, that salvation is through Jesus alone. And four, the commandment to share our faith. I'm really sorry about this, but for some reason, my ear and this thing just don't agree with each other right now. There we go. We'll try to get it adjusted. There we go. All right, the existence of God, the authority of Scripture, salvation is through Jesus alone, and the commandment to share 
our faith. Now, you can look at that and go, oh, there are all kinds of other issues out there. Yes, they are, but they all come back right now to this. These are going to be the four major points that the enemy is going to, to try to distract us from. When the enemy puts another issue, it's a wild hog to distract us from these four things. And these are going to be the four biggest challenges. If you want to keep your eye on the ball, if you want to understand where potential persecution is going to come from, if you're going to understand where pushback will come from and is currently coming from in our society, it's really on these four points, even if people don't recognize that that's what they're mad about. So let's take a look at them one at a time. First of all, the existence of God. If I were to ask 100 Christians what they think is the most foundational truth in Scripture... I'd probably get about five or six different answers along five or six different themes. Some would say God is love. That's a great theme. Some would say that salvation is by Jesus. Absolutely another great theme. But you know what underlies every other fundamental belief and understanding about our faith in in the Bible? Is this. God exists. Just pause on that one. It's, it's so fundamental, it's like the core code of the computer program that we don't pay attention to. God actually exists. We didn't make this up. We're not pretending. Some people, the way they define faith is, and they don't usually say these terms, but they'll say some version of this. People have an understanding that faith is making something up and pretending that it's true. If that's what faith is, I want no part of it. I I got no interest in pretend. Faith is not making something up and pretending it's true. Faith is believing something that is true, but that might not be seen through the normal ways. The absolute most fundamental truth that we as Christians hold is God exists. Let me give you some understanding through Scripture of this truth. How does the Bible begin? First four words. Out of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. Before there was anything else, before, you'll notice the Bible starts with that and doesn't even explain like how God got there. There's not even an attempt to explain God's existence. It just begins with that assumption. In the beginning, God. Then, a few years go along, God meets Moses at the burning bush. And he tells Moses, I want you to go back and free my people. And I've got this picture on my head that, God, that Moses goes, got it, going to go back free your people. He, starts, he walks two steps away and turns back and goes, when I get there, which God should I tell them sent them? Like, do you have a name for me? Because they got lots of gods in Egypt. And if I say God sent me, they're going to go, which God? And I'm going to go, I don't know, because we don't have a name for you. At that point, all they had ever called God was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He didn't have a name. So, God, so Moses asks God, what's your name? And here's what God answers him in Exodus 13, 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That is, tell them that the God who sent you is the God who actually exists. God says, my name is I am. God, basically, God, what God is saying, tell them that God who actually exists is the one who sent you. That's what I am means, right? I am, like as in I exist, I'm not using God's name for me, obviously. You are, I am, these are statements of existence. You exist, I exist. And basically, there are more things than that that God is saying here too. But the essential fundamental part of what God is saying is I am the God who actually exists. Then they go in, Moses goes in, God uses him to help rescue the people from Pharaoh's hand. They cross through the Red Sea, they come back to this mountain, where God met him, Moses goes back up to the mountain to meet with God again, and God gives him two tablets on which are written the Ten Commandments. And then he brings it down the mountain, and this is the first time that anything has ever been presented to people on the face of the earth as Scripture. Think about the importance of this. Up until this point, there is no written words that are considered Scripture from God himself. The first words of Scripture ever presented to God's people are these words. Exodus 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So, the first words of the Bible, God exists. God's name, I exist. 
First words ever given to us as scripture, God exists. And then the book of Hebrews puts it plainly in one of my absolute favorite Bible verses. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I've heard a lot of sermons on this passage. I've heard sermons on the front half. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I've heard sermons on the back half. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. I very seldom hear people emphasize the middle part. You got to believe that God exists. If you want to come to, you can't come to a God that you don't believe exists. The fundamental, the first part of our faith, if you want to please God, the first thing you've got to believe that there's a God to please. If you want to be rewarded by God, you've got to believe that there's a God who can reward you. This is the most fundamental thing that we as Christians can believe. God actually exists. You know what the main way that we uh, deny God's power is? We deny God's power by denying God's actual existence. Because if God doesn't exist, he has no power. We're just like the Ephesians and we're just, well, you believe that, I believe this. Okay, fine, we all have our own truth. Okay, yeah, there are differences of opinion. That fine, that's fine. I, that, but that's not what we're talking about here. God actually exists. That changes everything. If God doesn't exist, if, if God exists, doesn't exist, He has no power. But if God does exist, then He has all power by definition. Because if there is a, any part of power that God does not have, then the, whatever is not under God's power is stronger than God. And that, by definition, then becomes God. Right? By definition, God has all power. So if he doesn't exist, he has no power. If he does exist, he has all power, which means whether or not God exists is the most important question we can possibly ask or answer. Because it's a literal all-or-nothing proposition. It's no power or all power. But we tend to exist. We deny God's power and God's existence. How? Some people think, well, we're denying God's existence by atheism, the rise of atheism. And yeah, that's true, and it's happening a bit. But most of the way that we're denying God's existence in our culture today is not by outright atheism. It's usually by something like as as simple and nice-sounding as this, where people look at each other and go, well, who's God to you? Well, here's who God is to me. You're going to live your truth? I'll live my truth. The most important question is not who is God to you. The most important question is, who does God say God is? Because God exists, who God is to you and who God is to me is not what matters. There is a God who does exist, and what's most important is to discover the God who exists and try to get as close as possible to that. Now, we can ask who God is to you, but only after we ask who does God say God is. That's the primary statement. So who does God say God is? The main statement that God makes about himself isn't how powerful he is. It isn't about how loving he is. The first and most important statement God makes about himself is that he exists. Everything else rests on that. I know I'm taking a lot of time on something that is so like, duh, of course, but we, we have to be more... Con- it's so subconscious that we, if we, if we, if we've got to bring it to the foremost of our consciousness to really understand this. It, just a few years ago when this hit me, I thought, I've got to tell as many people this as possible. Bringing this foremost to our consciousness that God actually exists is so fundamental, especially as we face the challenges of today. Everything else rests on this. Here's why. Because God exists, we don't get to make him up. I exist. You got to take me as I am or not take me as I am, but you don't get to change it. You don't get to say, I don't like the fact that you're from California. I'm going to just tell everybody you're from Oregon. You don't get to do that. I'm not from Oregon. Sorry, you might like Oregon better than California. You're stuck with this guy being from California because I exist and you have to deal with that. So we can look at things in the Bible about God and go, I don't like that part about God. I'm going to pick something about God from Buddhism or something else because I like that better. You don't get to do that. You don't get to do that with a God who actually exists. 
You've got to take him as he is. You can reject him. You have that option. God gives you that option. You can accept. You can reject. What you can't do is edit. (laughs) That's not allowed because he actually exists. But that's what's happening today. It's not outright rejection. It's everybody wants to edit a God of their own pleasing. And that's the one thing that we are not allowed to do. Why? For the simple reason, he exists. This is our first distraction. This was the Ephesians' first distraction. To get, convince us that we get to say who God is. But here's the other thing. We don't, get to say, we, we don't get to edit God. We don't get to make him up. But because he exists, we do get to discover who he is. As Christians, as people of faith, we are not inventors. We are explorers. We are discoverers. It's like going out to discover a new land that didn't exist before. You realize America existed before Columbus. Right? It just hadn't been found by Europeans yet. Right? There were people here beforehand. They, 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 knew, they knew the place existed. But we get this idea that, like, because I discovered it, like, I made it. No, you just found something that pre-existed. God exists. We get to discover him. We get to know him. We, we, through scripture and through, through the body of Christ, we get to go deeper into who he is. But we don't get to edit him. We don't get to change him. But we do get to discover the God who exists. We have to start there. I believe this is what leaving their first love was all about for the Ephesians. What the, was that they had started, and, and there is hints about this all the way through Scripture, that they had started to have arguments about, man, I don't like that part about God, so I'm going to make it about, about this instead. And coming from a pagan background, where you just added another idol to the shelf, so that you, you, if you didn't like the current idol, this was kind of in their framework. And this is what the Apostle Paul is tr- instructing Timothy to help the Ephesians get through. You cannot, can, you cannot continue as a Christian with a pagan framework. And the pagan framework says, if I don't like that God, I'll just create a different God. And that's the framework that's in our culture now. Oh, I don't like the God that I hear in that church. I'm going to go to this other place, or I'm going to go to this other, you know, spirituality, or I'm going to read these books over here. Oh, that's the God I like. I'm going to go and believe in that God. You get to do that, but you're wrong. You don't get to make it up, but we do get to discover the God who does exist. Now, that's the foundation. I will not spend that much time on the next three points. Because that one is so important, it, it, everything else rests on it. So, because God exists, point two, we can stand on the authority of Scripture. Because God exists, we can stand on the authority of Scripture. You see, if God doesn't exist, then the Bible doesn't matter. Just pause for a moment with that. If God doesn't exist, the Bible doesn't matter, at least not more than any other book. Right? It's just somebody's opinions after all. If God doesn't exist, this is just a book of opinions. And their opinion doesn't matter any more than my opinion does. Right? But because God does exist, the Bible is essential. It is authoritative. So if God, do, God doesn't exist, the Bible doesn't matter. And vice versa. If we can be convinced that the Bible is just another book then the God we read about in the Bible is just another character. Might as well be Harry Potter. Because he performs the same kind of stuff. Right? Oh, he does magic whenever you want, right? It's, it's, if, if God does not exist, then that's all the God of Scripture is. He's just another fictional character. So what does Paul tell Timothy to remind the Ephesian church of the authority of Scripture? Let's take a look at it. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 says this. All Scripture is God-breathed. Unless God actually exists, that doesn't matter. Because God exists, that makes Scripture the ultimate authority. All scripture is God-breathed, breathed by the God who actually exists, inspired by the God who actually exists. Therefore, it has authority. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. So it's not just pretty. <laughs> it's, it's actually got use, right? It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good 
I have never seen a Christian fall away or a church fall away from God without this being at the core of it, denying the authority of Scripture. I spend a lot of time in a lot of different churches from a lot of different denominations. It's a joy as a fellow Assemblies of God pastor to be in, a, in an AG church today uh, because a lot of time I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm in other churches and I learn stuff there, but it's always nice to come back home. And I've been in some churches recently that are, are, are way further down the drift <laughs> than we are. It, it gains me an even greater appreciation for our fellowship and how firmly we have held on to th- some things while we can even argue over certain things. Uh, we've been able to hold the line on biblical truth far better than a whole lot of our good friends in other denominations. And I've never seen a, a church or a Christian fall away it's never about the issue of sexuality or the issue of politics or the issue of race or whatever is the headline today. It's never. Those are, the, those are the wild hogs. Those are the distractions. It's always about underneath it, am I going to accept what Scripture says about those things? And most of the arguments that I see from people who are falling away from faith is not because they have a different interpretation of Scripture, but simply because they've denied its authority in their life. I just don't want to believe that anymore, so I'm not going to consider it authoritative. That's what happens. The only way that I know not to be fooled by false teachers is to know for yourself what the Bible actually says. And not just the occasional verse that you can pick out, but what, what, is, the, what is the narrative of Scripture? What is the entire... Uh, entirety of Bible of the Scripture trying to tell us. The gospel story is basically the framework of Scripture, that God created a perfect world and created us in His image, that through sin we broke that image, that God has, has, spends the rest of the Bible in, 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 enacting a plan to reconcile us and all of creation back to the Creator, and that the only way that could happen was that God Himself came down to live a perfect life, to be crucified, to rise again so that we could have new life in him and he will come again one day to make it all right just like it was before Eden. That is the scope of Scripture. That is the gospel story. And that is what is being challenged by, first of all, maybe this God doesn't exist and if so, that story is just another fairy tale. Or maybe God does exist but the Scripture doesn't have authority, therefore it's just another fairy tale. We've got to be careful. We've got to understand that. So the, first of all, God does exist. Secondly, the thing we're going to be challenged on is the authority of Scripture. Thirdly, the, the, main thing, the third main thing we're going to be challenged on and are being challenged on today, that salvation is through Jesus alone. That salvation is through Jesus alone. Of all the biblical truths that will prove problematic for us with the surrounding culture in the next generation or so, this is the top of the list. Really? So your way is the only way? How arrogant, right? The Ephesians at least knew, or somebody who visited Ephesus knew, well, if I'm going to be polite in this new town, I'm not going to say that my God is the only God. I'll go get an Artemis idol and put it up on the shelf so that I recognize that their truth is true too. It's just polite. And that's what we're being encouraged to do today, not with physical idols, but with our belief system. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. That's fine. But God says, no, that's not the case. How does the Bible put it? Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is through Jesus alone. I know there are people who think that's arrogant and don't like it, but it's not my idea. It's God's idea. It starts with a God who actually exists who put down his truth in a, in a volume, uh, in a library of books that we call the Bible that has the authority of the God who exists. And in that place, multiple places, it tells us the only way we can be saved is by the sacrifice of that God who exists, who came down in human form for us. Because God exists, the Bible is authoritative. Because the Bible is authoritative, that is the only way to salvation. If you can undermine the authority of the existence of God and undermine the authority of Scripture, then whatever way you can get to heaven is whatever way you can get to heaven. The problem is it's not real. So if we want what's really real based on the God who exists, we have to accept the Bible that he gave us. 
if your unbelieving co-workers or family members are going to have a problem with your faith in the next generation, it probably won't be because you believe in God. And it probably won't even believe because you believe in the Bible or Jesus. It will probably be because you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's the first sticking point. Believe in God, fine. Believe in the Bible, no problem. Really, you believe your way is the only way? That's the first breaking line, right? But again, we've got to stop and go, no, it's not my way is the only way. It's God's way is the only way. This is not about me. This is not an arrogance for me. This is a declaration from God himself. So let's go back to the book of Acts, to the founding of the church of Ephesus. They caused a riot because an entire industry was collapsing in a major city because they wouldn't just add Jesus to the shelf. They said the shelf of idols can't exist anymore because it's only Jesus. That's what caused the riot. The riot wasn't caused because they believed in the existence of God. The riot wasn't caused because they believed in the authority of Scripture. The riot existed because they believed Jesus is the only way. And that's what got rid of the Artemis idols. See, Jesus is God is easy to accept because I can accept Jesus is God and add him to my idol shelf. I got lots of gods. You can believe Jesus is God too. No problem. Jesus is God was not the problem. You know what the problem was? Jesus is Lord was the problem. Because Lord means he's the God over the other gods. He's the authority over all authorities. That's what changes everything. And you see it in scripture over and over again. He's not the God of gods. That's not what he's ever called. He's called King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's never called God of gods. There's a purposefulness in that in scripture. Because if he's God of gods, that just makes him Zeus. He's the most important God of all the gods. That's Zeus, that's Jupiter. The Romans and Greeks already had that. <laughs> so you, then you just have Ju- Zeus, Jupiter, Jehovah. All, th- all three are the same thing. If you were going to go God of gods. But when you say king of kings, lord of lords, that changes everything. And this is a huge point for me because... The people who gave their lives for the faith over the last 2,000 years did not give their lives simply because they believed God exists or because they believed in the authority of Scripture. They lost their lives because they would not bow down to another idol in addition to bowing down to Jesus. Take a look at the history of those who have been persecuted for the Christian faith. It is because... People said, you can keep believing in Jesus, but we need you to bow down to this idol or to this dictator or to this king. And they said, no, I only bow to Jesus. I won't bow down there. And all the other religions were fine. It's just another God. We'll keep bowing. We don't care. And they went, no. It wasn't because they believed in God. It wasn't because they believed in the Bible. It's because they believed only in Jesus and would not bow down to anybody else. So when somebody comes to me today and says, well, we're just going to add this little thing from this other thing. It actually happened to me not long ago. I was asked to perform a funeral for someone who had attended the church years ago who moved away and got sick, but she was going to be buried near us. So her daughter, who used to attend our church, came to me and we were sorting out the funeral. And the daughter uh, had, had, had spent some time in our church years past, but in recent years after moving away had really gotten into all kinds of new age philosophy and all kinds of different religious things. And so she said, at one point she said, now I know it's going to be a Christian service, but she said, I also have a reading from, and she named some esoteric, other religion, God thing. I don't want to do this reading as well. And I said, well, if you do that, you're going to have to have somebody else perform the ceremony. She said, oh, no, no, I'm not asking you not to do your stuff. You do everything you want to do. I just want to add this one thing because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm believing in this right now and I want to add this to it. I'm not, I'm not pushing you away. I'm not saying, I said, I understand what you're telling me. But if you do that, you'll have to have somebody, other preacher do it. But why? It's a beautiful truth. And I read it through it. Yeah, that's, I, I understand what they're saying there. I, I guess it has some parallels of Scripture, but it's actually coming from a, an alternative religion that presents itself other than God. But I don't believe it in that way. I'm just doing, and I'm, I'm not pushing back. It's your mom. It's you do what you want. But if you add this in, you're going to have to do it without me. Why? Because literally for 2,000 years, Christians have been persecuted and killed because they would not do the thing she was asking me to do. 
I will only honor Jesus. You mention another God in the ceremony, I'm out. It's the same to me as putting an idol on the shelf. And that's, and it seemed, I almost felt rude saying it. I mean, it's your mom and it's just this little saying, I get it. I get why you're pushing it. I get why it matters to you. And I'm not telling you, you can't do it. I'm just telling you, I can't participate. I can't participate. And she pulled it and we did an entirely Christian ceremony, which is what her mother would have wanted anyway as well. And then finally, the fourth big truth that I believe we're asked to be distracted from is the commandment to share our faith. I, I believe second only to the exclusivity of salvation by Jesus alone that this is going to be the next biggest sticking point in the next few generations. You can believe the three previous truths and be okay. You can believe that God exists and nobody will have a problem. You can believe that the Bible is completely authoritative and nobody will have a problem with it. You can even believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven and nobody will have a problem with it as long as you stay quiet about it. This doesn't become messy until we open our mouths. And so if you believe those three things and people who love you and who don't understand this may come along and go, just be quiet. Why do you have to talk about it all the time? You can believe it. That's fine. Just shh. Right? The problem is, we're not, I'm not, I'm not doing this because I, I have a, an innate desire inside me to just try to get everybody to believe like I believe. I do this because I've been commanded to. By the God who exists through the authority of Scripture because of salvation by Jesus alone. And the Jesus through whom we have salvation said this, Matthew 26, 19 through 20, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And that's just one of many, many places. In fact, it's the only commandment repeated in all four Gospels and the book of Acts is the commandment to share our faith. We call it the Great Commission. Don't get distracted from that. Who is God to you is only the right question after we've asked who does God say God is. All Scripture is God-breathed. Cannot devolve into, what did God really say? I'm not sure. I've got a different opinion. No, if God said it, that's what it is. All Scripture is God-breathed. There are many ways to heaven. Must be replaced by Jesus is the only way. And this whole idea that faith is a private thing and you have your truth and I have my truth must change to go and make disciples of all nations. We are commanded to share this truth. So why am I making a big deal about this as the worship team comes up? Lately, I'm seeing way too many good people like the friend that I just described for her mom's funeral. I'm seeing too many good people who have been raised in the church who are getting distracted. They're setting their faith aside and what they're setting their faith aside for is something so much less than And when I ask, why? Why are you abandoning your faith? Why are you seeking some other way? They usually talk about people in the church who had a shallow, knee-jerk, reactionary faith in Jesus. Oh, it's all just become about politics, or it's all really just about power, or it's all really just about... And a lot of times when they mention things, I recognize, yeah, there have been those abuses. I, I've seen them too. But here's, here's my concern. Don't replace a real thing that has problems with an unreal thing that has problems. <sighs> right? It, 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 are, are there problems in the church? Yes, absolutely. We're human beings. We are sinful. The Bible has already told us that very, very clearly. The Bible never backs away from the fact that his people are messy. If we weren't, most of the Bible would have been unnecessary. Most of the Bible is pushback against God's people doing stupid things. <laughs> From the prophets in the Old Testament to the letters in the New. <laughs> oh, come on, God's people. Get it together. You're supposed to be better than this. That's, it's not a surprise to God that the church messes up. But why would I go from a place that at least has the truth, even if we're interpreting it and living it badly, to a place that doesn't even have the truth? 
when I see what people are replacing faith in Jesus with, it's just as shallow, but it's shallow without Jesus. Or it's with Jesus, but he's not the only way. Or it's with the Bible along with other good books. Don't reject what's being presented today, this knee-jerk, shallow presentation of something that isn't truth. But go deeper into the God who is. A few years ago, I went through a difficult season in ministry where I, I wasn't really tempted to leave my faith, but I was tempted to just leave ministry behind because of the challenges and difficulties and difficult people and all that stuff. And I was sitting with a counselor one day and he looked at me and he said, Carl, what is it you think you really need? And have you ever said anything and only after you say it, do you look back and go, wow, I didn't realize I believed that until it came out of my mouth. That happened to me that day. This counselor asked me, Carl, what is it that you really need? And I looked at him and these words came out of my mouth. I have to figure out how to fall in love with Jesus again. I'd gotten so busy working for him that I'd forgotten to live with him. It's exactly the problem of the Ephesian church. You've lost your first love. They were still going through the motions. They were still gathering at church. They were still singing together. They were still actually a very large, strong, and wealthy church. But you got this thing against you. You're just going through the motions now. May God help us to never go through the motions. May he help us to recognize there is a God who actually exists. He gave us his way in this amazing library that we call the Bible. He came down to live and die and rise again to save us from our sins. He's coming back again. And how can I then not obey the command to share this amazing good news with everybody? May you be encouraged by that. May you concentrate on that. May you focus on that. And may we not get distracted by anything else that might be running in front of us at the moment. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.